Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Hello, scholar warriors and fellow travelers. Welcome to episode 168 of the Dangerous History Podcast. And in this episode, I'm speaking to Dr. Mark Thornton, who is an economist of the Austrian School of Economics and currently is senior fellow at the Mises Institute. He's the author of multiple books, the latest of which is The Skyscraper Curse and How Austrian Economists Predicted Every Major Financial Crisis of the Last Century. And I'll be talking to him about that. But first, I also wanted to ask him about a recent article that he wrote in which he discussed a little bit about how and why the current red tide problem on Florida's Gulf Coast is caused, or at the very least, hugely exacerbated by government policies in regards to things like agriculture, especially sugar, and control of water, and environmental policies, and so on. So, very interesting conversation. I was very happy to have Mark on. I've been following his work with great interest for many years. Mark, welcome to the Dangerous History Podcast. Thanks for talking to me today. Hey, it's great to be with you. Well, I wanted to talk to you about a couple of things. Um, one that we'll get to in a bit is uh, your latest book, which is very interesting. Um, but before that, I had a, a listener who tipped me off um, because I'm from Florida. I live in Florida, and I've done some work in the past on my podcast about uh, the Everglades and Florida sugar and all the corporate welfare and, and shenanigans going on there. And a listener sent me uh, the link to a recent article you did about Red Tide and what's going on there. So I wanted to talk to you about that as well. So I gather from the article that you had a vacation that fell through because of the Red Tide? Yes, actually, it's adversely affected a couple of my vacations in the past. Uh, and I am planning to come to Florida as soon as I can. Uh, but it, it didn't re ruin a vacation recently for me, but I, I saw the story about the red tide and I went online to see what people were saying about, you know, what was causing uh, the red tide. And there wasn't any clear answer that was available in the news. And I knew exactly what was going on. I'm not a marine biologist. I'm not an expert at sugar production uh, or any of those things. But the basic economics of the sugar subsidies tells us that uh, because we can't import sugar from other countries, we pay a very, very high price for sugar. And we're forced to grow uh, the sugar that we do consume in places that it otherwise would not be grown. Uh, it's just not cost effective. And uh, as a result, the state of Florida grows a pretty good amount of sugar along with Louisiana. And in order to produce as much as sugar as possible, 
they use lots of uh, petrochemical fertilizer uh, to stimulate the growth of the sugar under those, you know, otherwise adverse conditions. So how does that then cause, you know, red tide, which is a naturally occurring phenomenon, how, how does that specifically then lead to red tide getting so out of hand? Well, it, it's, it is quite complex. Uh, red, tide, red tide usually grows out in the Gulf near the continental shelf, um, and it's not usually a problem. We've known about red tide for almost 200 years, uh, and until recent decades, it's really never been a problem. So the red tide starts out far at sea, but sometimes it gets blown uh, closer to the coast and in inland waterways. Um, and that's where it uh, typically comes in contact with the fertilizer runoff uh, from the sugar production. So they put lots of fertilizer to grow the sugar, but inevitably in a wet climate like southern uh, Florida, a lot of that fertilizer gets leached out and into waterways, and then into contact with the red tide. And that, that stimulates the, uh, the growth of the red tide and diminishes the growth of green algaes, uh, which typically would keep the red tide algae under control. So it completely upends what would be the normal kind of naturally occurring um, things that would balance, balance this all out and keep it from getting so out of hand. And then the result is, as anyone has seen who's either been uh, to the Gulf Coast of Florida lately or who've seen it on the news, it's, it's an ecological disaster where there's just piles of dead fish everywhere and all kinds of other dead sea life. And it's not only a disaster from just a purely environmental point of view, but then it is a uh, just a disaster for the economy of the entire region because there's obviously vacationing is a huge part of uh, Florida's economy, especially along the Gulf Coast. And then all the other things that go along with that commercial seafood, um, recreational fishing, you know, a lot of people make livings out that way as, as fishing captains and fishing guides, taking people out. And all of this is destroyed. I I had a family reunion earlier in the summer on the Gulf Coast, and we really lucked out. We were we were just south of Tampa, and at that point in the summer, the red tide hadn't made it that far north yet. And so, you know, we had a pretty nice vacation, and it, there weren't any problems related to that. But it seems like it's creeping up that way, and you know, having having just been out on that's I live on the Atlantic coast of Florida, but having uh, just been over on the Gulf, I mean, it's blatantly obvious how much of the economy of that region is tied into tied into the sea there. So it really is a disaster for the entire area. Now, aside from the fact that the sugar industry in particular and some other um, agricultural interests, maybe to a lesser extent, end up having to use a lot more fertilizer than they should because they're trying to grow um, sugarcane in what's really kind of marginal sugarcane land. What role does the federal government play in regard to this due to their control of the water flows in the region? Yeah, I want to go back just a second to oh, touch sure. on the, uh, the toxicity of red tide because that's, that's what makes it different uh, than the blue-green algaes. Uh, the red, red tide or red algae actually produces a toxin 
Uh, so as it grows, it gives off increasing amounts of uh, this toxin, and it's the toxin that can kill fish and other water life. Uh, it even kills, unfortunately, um, the manatee, which when you th- when you consider a manatee such a large animal, you wouldn't think that it would be uh, susceptible to the red tide, but it's already killed. Uh, it, when my article was published, it was 92 manatees, probably more by now. Uh, it's 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 very unfortunate, but that toxin is what kills the fish, uh, the water life, birds, uh, and anything else that really can come in contact uh, with it. Uh, humans are not, you know, likely to be hurt by it, you know, because you're just you're just sort of warned by the color and the smell uh, that that's not a place you really want to go to. So that's the ultimate problem. Uh, is the the toxin and the the resulting wildlife deaths, and then as you said, you know the economic impact is enormous on on business, on the convention business, um, the tourism that it is going to ultimately harm, and then all the peripheral businesses that go along with tourism at the height of the tourist season. You know you have hotels, restaurants, uh, shopping centers uh, that are adversely affected. Uh, and this is something that's going, it's concentrated on the West Coast of Florida. It's happened elsewhere, I know, in uh, the Northern Gulf. Uh, it doesn't really have much of an impact or as much of an impact, uh, as you said, on the East Coast of Florida because the water circulation is uh, so much typically better on the East Coast as compared to the West Coast. And so the, circula- the circulation of the water is really important. The uh, when the red tide moves in, and if the water's still, that's when you see the the growth really accelerate, and it has accelerated um, up the west coast from the southern part uh, up into the Tampa Bay area. Uh, there's little pockets uh, pockets of it elsewhere, but it, it's a, not just an environmental disaster, but it's an economic disaster that's affecting a lot of people, and a lot of those people are. Uh, small businesses that don't have the national or international footprint to withstand the local problems. So um, just be thinking about the people of uh, Southwest Florida in particular. Yeah, yeah. I think about where we were staying at the family reunion I was at. You know, it's a small little kind of funky beach, little resort kind of place that you can tell is sort of a mom and pop a uh, place where, you know, it's a handful of people that are doing everything. And, um, you know, it's, it's funky, charming little places like that and, and, and uh, unique little one of a kind seafood restaurants and, you know, businesses that offer again, guided fishing trips or take people out diving or whatever it is. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I think you make a good point where it's the, everybody's going to be harmed, but it's the, the smaller businesses that are going to have the toughest time getting through a, a year or two of not much tourism. Yeah, ironically, hurricanes and tropical storms would also help uh, the situation by increasing the circulation of the water and, and maybe even moving some of that red tide back out to sea. Hmm. Well, we'll see. The last two hurricane seasons in a row, Florida's gotten uh, hit pretty good. So I guess... Um, we can maybe in a way kind of cross our fingers that we'll get something, maybe hopefully not bad enough to level cities, but, um, maybe something that can, can stir it up a little bit. 
so we have the the problem of the sugar industry, which is entirely uh, created by by government, you know, subsidies and uh, by um, protectionism and all that sort of thing that then causes there to be all this additional fertilizer getting pumped into the waterways. But you mentioned in your article also the the issue connected to this that the federal government has control in almost a central planning sort of a way on the water flows of much of Florida, especially South Florida, um, particularly the the key kind of water flow that goes from Lake Okeechobee down across the Everglades and ultimately out into the Gulf. So can you explain a little bit about how federal control of the water and what they do with it has also been a contributor to the problem? Sure. And actually, that's one of the main things that stimulated my interest in writing this article was um, that we were I was discussing something on Facebook with some friends and somebody lashed out at me and said, well, you know, what's going to happen if there's no EPA regulators there to protect me uh, from environmental damage? And I, I just pointed out that the EPA is in a prime position uh, and it typically works to defend the polluters. And so, you know, the the EPA and federal bureaucrats are in charge of, for example, controlling water uh, in Lake Okeechobee. Uh, they're the ones that uh, actually increased the flow from the lake through the waterways and into the Gulf. Um, you know, and I'm sure that they must know what the implications of their decisions are. Uh, they must know, you know, how much fertilizer is leaching um, out of the sugarcane groves uh, and into the waterways. And, uh, you know, so they must have full knowledge of what they're doing. And they are actually in charge of the pipes uh, that drain the lake. So, um, you know, in contrast to most Americans who think uh, environmental and financial uh, regulators are there in the business to protect uh, the average American citizen, well, the reality is, is that they're there uh, to protect the polluters themselves. The EPA sets limits on how much they can pollute, but if firms stay within the limits of what they can and cannot do, then they're protected from lawsuits by people who are adversely affected. So if, you know, the the chambers of commerce of southwestern Florida wanted to get together to sue uh, the sugar farmers or whatever it happened to be, uh, the EPA, by setting those limits and, and in just enforcing those limits, um, is basically backing up the polluters, uh, not the people who are being harmed from the pollution. And that's really true through all the regulations, whether it's environmental or financial or whatever it happens to be. The EPA protects the harmers from the people who are harmed seeking, you know, some kind of redress or some kind of recovery, the EPA stands in the way of all that by sanctioning uh, this type of behavior, in effect, legalizing things like pollution. Yeah. And I would imagine that should anyone try to sue um, any of the government agencies that deal with this, the, the EPA, the Army Corps of Engineers, the South Florida Water Management District, I'd imagine they would quickly run into those those two two ominous words, sovereign immunity. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, so it's a really it's a really really bad situation, 
And, you know, none of this has would have really had to happen because the sugar industry in Florida and in uh, Louisiana are artificial industries. They wouldn't exist uh, or be much, much smaller if we didn't have protectionism keeping out sugar from other countries that can produce it far cheaper and far less environmentally harmful uh, in places like Cuba and Brazil. And and so our industries, as far as sugar cane, are artificial. And also, for the most part, the sugar beet industry in the, in the Western states. And I have a friend who's written a paper on that, and it was actually the sugar beet farmers and their senators in, uh, in the Western states that actually got the protectionism at the very beginning. That's, that's who ultimately drove for the uh, sugar protection. Uh, but what will be seen, of course, is that the sugar beet industry and the sugar cane industry uh, are far, far larger than they otherwise would be. I'm sure that there would be a little sugar cane farming going on in Louisiana, and there would be some sugar beet growing on the Western states, but not on the scale that is happening today. You know, And so those are phantom uh, industries. And so the whole problem of fertilizer pollution uh, would not exist at all. And we would return to a state where the red tide was a, a very seldom seen phenomenon at all. They just wouldn't exist. And, and so it's very unfortunate because we're harming our industries, we're harming our uh, environment, um, and consumers end up paying a very high, high cost for it because our sugar price is the highest in the world. Uh, it's more than double the world price of sugar. And of course, you know, you know that, the, that sugar is, is, is in so many different products, uh, so much so that we have an enormous corn industry uh, that's grown up to provide uh, corn-based sweeteners. And, uh, you know, and that's, that's all just a real economic waste, really, that could mean lower prices for consumers on a whole host of uh, products that they buy, we're diverting corn and we're diverting this land, and it's it's just a it's just a very sad waste of our resources that lowers our standard of living in the United States, and some it's something that could be easily remedied. Yeah, just free things up, free up uh, trade policy regarding sugar, and a lot of the the corporate welfare that goes to the the big sugar growers and all that. And it seems like it should be an easy sell also on sort of like populist grounds. And I'm, I'm just surprised. I mean, I guess not really surprised. It kind of makes sense given public choice economics and that sort of thing. But still, I'm surprised there's not more potential for, for some politician or group of politicians to come along and just on populist grounds be like, you know, we should we should end all these these sugar policies and everything. Um, I mean, it seems like you could even you can even appeal to a fair amount of kind of progressive types on sort of a combination of populist and environmentalist grounds, and it just I guess shows the power of campaign contributions that there's really no such movement at the moment. Absolutely, you know the the problem is it's a public choice problem where you have 315 million Americans. Uh, they don't know that they're paying this cost by and large. I can guarantee you that. And the cost is relatively low per individual. 
So it, it may amount to, you know, a, a dollar a day per American uh, in loss. But the people who are growing sugar in the United States, they're by and large all multimillionaires. I know there's some poor uh, sugar farmers in Louisiana, but basically uh, the people who own the large producers um, are multimillionaires many times over. Uh, and they take some of that wealth and they plow it back into the political system to make sure that certainly every uh, congressperson and senator in the sugar states um, are locked down in their pocket, uh, but they also spread the money around too. And, uh, and of course, all the resources in sugar are all very tightly held. I'm not even sure if there's a sugar producer, refiner, uh, that's listed on the stock market at all. I think most of these assets are all very private and privately held. And uh, so they can flex their political muscles very effectively and very directly, whereas sugar consumers, 95 plus percent, don't even know uh, that they're being taken advantage of here. And I can tell you, you know, I've told this story about sugar and the environment for many years. And people from across uh, the political spectrum are shocked and uh, are very supportive of the idea of removing the subsidies. And I've talked to very conservative people. I've talked to very liberal people, progressives, uh, certainly environmentalists, uh, certainly, but really everybody along the political spectrum, uh, Democrats, Republicans, certainly independents, libertarians, you know, they all, once they're informed, they all uh, oppose those sugar subsidies and would, would, and would actively like to see them repealed. And I, I don't know how Trump supporters feel about this. I think that aside from the protectionist element in the Trump support base, I think that they, they would all also support removing the subsidy and bringing a little freedom back into uh, the sugar business. Yeah, although I don't think Trump himself would support it. Um, when I did a couple episodes a year ago about the rise of big sugar in Florida and kind of where the history of where it came from, um, the the dominant family at the moment and for the last bunch of decades are the Fanhul family, who originally came from Cuba, and and their sugar operation has even overtaken U.S. sugar in in size and wealth over the past few decades. And um, they are very good at the game of giving money to both political parties in any significant election. And in the 2016 presidential campaign, there's one member of the Fan Hul family who is uh, a Democrat um, and another member of the Fan Hul family who is a Republican. And it's obviously not for any ideological disagreement between the two of them. It's so that one of them can give to one side and the other can give the other side and they cover their bases no matter what. And in the 2016 presidential campaign, I found out that the one Fan Hul brother who is a Democrat had a lavish fundraising event for Hillary Clinton. And within weeks, the other Fan Hul brother who's a Republican had a lavish a campaign event for Donald Trump. So they're very, very good at playing the game. And unfortunately, Trump doesn't seem to have much in the way of his own ideas or anything. So it would take, I think, a lot of popular pressure to to move him on that. But yeah, it, it's, it's actually very interesting 
Because if you go back to the origin of the Republican Party, the Republican Party brought together various smaller parties like the Whig Party, Protectionism, uh, the Prohibitionist Party, and the Know Nothing Party. And, you know, Trump is a different Republican in that he is more of a know nothing <laughs> type of a Republican, but he also brings in, of course, the protectionist, um, xenophobic aspects uh, from the birth of the Republican Party. So some people say, well, you know, why is, you know, he's so different? He's not even a Republican. Well, yes, you can make that statement because he was a Democrat, he supported Democratic uh, candidates, but. He really brings back for the first time in over a century this uh, xenophobia, um, hatred of foreigners uh, that was so prevalent as is really the the main ideological plank of the Know Nothing Party uh, back in the 1840s and 1850s. Hmm, Yeah, that's an interesting point. I hadn't I hadn't thought about that connection before. One thing I wanted to to run by you on on this topic before we we talk about the skyscraper curse. I'm a historian. That's what I teach. That's what I have my degrees in. I'm not an economist, but I dabble in economics, and I like to think that I have a little bit better understanding of economics than most historians do. And when I was doing my episode of my podcast a while ago about the draining of the Everglades and all that stuff. I I made a connection that I talked about in the episode, and basically I compared the government intervention into the natural ecosystem that took place in the Everglades, where it gradually got more and more controlled until it became totally artificial and and, uh, centrally planned and controlled. I compared that by analogy to government intervention into the economy and sort of using the, the Ludwig von Mises idea of each intervention leads to further interventions and then eventually you end up in central planning. So, you know, they start messing with the Everglades in relatively modest ways, but each intervention leads to negative unintended consequences. And the response to that is then more intervention, of course, until eventually you arrive at the kind of ecological equivalent of full on socialism. In other words, trying to centrally plan a massive ecosystem with all the complexities and unknowns that you can't possibly take into account, the the calculation problem. And my comparison was that to the sorts of problems you get when you try to centrally plan an economy. And I'm I'm just curious, um, as a as a real economist, if you think that I'm at all onto something with that comparison, with that analogy, that in both cases you have kind of arrogant government agencies thinking that they can centrally plan an intricate, complex system better than natural forces working themselves out. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there in, in one sense, it's almost exactly the same thing, except um, in one case you're talking about a – a market economy with individual people and property rights and so forth. And the other is an environmental resource um, that is uh, largely without people in their uh, working uh, in any capacity. But it is uh, a phenomenon of government uh, intervention that you suggest uh, that goes back and is really identified with Ludwig von Mises, who is the namesake of my uh, our institute here. 
And uh, he came up with this notion of what's called progressive interventionism, where one intervention into an economy causes problems. It typically doesn't solve any problems, and it typically causes new problems. So as a result, you get one bureaucracy, for example, trying to solve the original problem with something else, and another bureaucracy trying to solve the unintended consequence of the first intervention. Uh, and so not only do you get more and more interventions, but you bring in progressively more uh, bureaucracies, uh, some of whom, in the case of the Everglades, you mentioned earlier at the state, local and federal level, multiple agencies intervening. And ultimately, if, if people don't recognize this issue of progressive intervention uh, in the economy, which was also F.A. Hayek's uh, the foundation of F.A. Hayek's most famous book, The Road to Serfdom. Uh, the same thing is that you, if you don't identify logically uh, that this is an unsolvable uh, situation, an abandoned intervention, you end up with economic chaos. Uh, the, the economy becomes increasingly socialistic, and likewise the, envir- the environment becomes increasingly degraded, and uh, the value of uh, that natural resource declines over time. So that the Everglades, you know, has pollution problems. Uh, it, it suffers from being drained as a water resource. All sorts of other problems that uh, people down there know of firsthand. Uh, and so it's not going to get any better uh, with more and more government intervention in the Everglades. The good news is that if we stop the intervention uh, and we rely more on private property rights and we get rid of that sugar subsidy and give more local control over the Everglades, that the environment will completely recover, uh, I would think, in a fairly quick amount of time. So the solution in the economy is to get rid of the government and government intervention and you'll see the economy bloom and grow and, and stabilize, and uh, you get a return to prosperity and higher standards of living. Uh, and likewise with the Everglades, the, uh, the pollutants will wash away, uh, the sugar will go away, uh, the bureaucrats with their engineering mentality will be gone, and Mother Nature will, take back, will be back in charge. And I have a feeling uh, uh, that the Everglades will return to more of its natural state. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just as delusional to think that the Politburo can plan what the economy should make as it is to think that the Army Corps of Engineers can know the exact right number of gallons to pump out of Lake Okeechobee and not not end up doing always either too much or too little. Yeah, the the Army Corps of Engineers, bless their heart, is uh, you know a bunch of you know, <laughs> I don't know what the term of it is, but they they always seem when given a choice, they always seem to make the wrong one. <laughs> uh, there's an excellent book uh, that I read a number of years ago called Rising Tide. And it's a it's a history. It's a book of history that I always recommend. And it's about the Army Corps of Engineers on the Mississippi River in the years before and after the great flood of the Mississippi in 1927, something that Unfortunately, people don't get taught in um, in high schools or even in colleges. Uh, but it's a very, very interesting and well done 
history of, about that main event and about the role of the Army Corps of Engineers. And uh, it reads like just a long list of whenever the Army Corps of Engineers could go with plan A or plan B, they always seem to pick the wrong one, <laughs> the one that ultimately did the most damage, um, particularly dur- during that flood of 1927. Well, that's very interesting. I'll have to I'll have to check that out. I didn't I wasn't aware of that book, but it makes perfect sense. I mean, it's the same sort of central central planning mentality. You know, that same oh, we can just New Deal our way out of this problem kind of um, attitude. But, yeah, that book that book by John Barry, the Rising Tide. It really is a great uh, indicator, and it and it really still happening today. the The Army Corps of Engineers on the on the Mississippi has been papering over problems for decades and decades. And, you know, eventually it's going to lead to some kind of catastrophic events. Well, uh, speaking of catastrophic events, I wanted to talk to you a bit about your latest book, which I haven't had a chance to read yet. I think it just came out a few weeks ago, but uh, I've read a fair number of your articles related to the topic over the years. So, so I, I think I've got a reasonable understanding of the basic idea but the the book is the skyscraper curse and it's about this interesting correlation between record-setting skyscrapers and problems in the economy and so my first question is how did you first become aware of this interesting correlation between record-breaking skyscrapers and economic downturns there was a report um, an article in Investors Business Daily about a research report by a guy named uh, Andrew Lawrence, who was a real estate analyst uh, for a large bank. And he published a, actually more than one report about the skyscraper curse. Uh, and they reported on it. And, it. and as a matter of fact, most of the financial media uh, reported um, on this uh, real estate report and, you know, it's a very interesting uh, issue, uh, but most of them dismissed it. They said, you know, this is like any other stock market indicator that there's got to be something flawed uh, with this particular indicator. It just seems so fanciful that uh, just by setting a new world record height in skyscrapers could cause an economic crisis. And when I saw that, I immediately uh, thought of the Austrian business cycle uh, theory. And, you know, at the Mises Institute, we represent Austrian school, free market economics uh, around the world. And so I was very familiar with the our business cycle theory. And I could see the, uh, the theory embedded, really, in the skyscraper indicator uh, and its curse uh, all of the elements were there. So I was very excited at the time. And uh, I tried to figure out a way to uh, to write that up so that other people could understand that connection. So Austrian business cycle theory was the, I don't know, the the key that allowed you to realize that the skyscraper uh, economic crash correlation wasn't wasn't random and wasn't you know that there was there was something deeper going on there. So, 
first off, just for anyone, I've I've talked about it a little bit in various episodes of my show, but just for anyone listening who might not already be familiar with Austrian business cycle theory, could you give us the Cliff Notes version? Sure. The Austrian theory of the business cycle starts with the production of money and credit. And our central bank, the Federal Reserve, um, can set interest rates. And you'll hear news stories about the Fed meeting and changing their mind and changing their target interest rates. Uh, And in that way, they can increase or decrease the supply of money and credit. And then the banks uh, can increase the amount of lending uh, that they do into the economy. So the whole thing starts with artificially low interest rates. And that is what encourages things like a boom in the economy, a bubbles in the economy. And ultimately, if the boom is around for long enough or the bubble is blown large enough, someone somewhere will start a new record-setting skyscraper during all that uh, economic euphoria uh, of the periods that this thing is, this is something that's been dated back into the 19th uh, century in my book. So the examples go for almost 150 years. And uh, so the artificially low interest rates cause a lot of investment in the economy. It causes the value of all assets, whether it's stocks, bonds, land, real estate, everything goes up. Uh, And so everybody's happy. Everybody's got a job. Everybody's making money. Everybody's talking about their stocks in their retirement account at cocktail parties and all sorts of things like that. And uh, so that is what generates the bubble in the economy. But Austrian business cycle theory says that, you know, the central bank, the Federal Reserve, hasn't created any new resources. And so as all of these male investments are being built or produced, two things eventually develop in the economy uh, that undermine the bubble. One is, is that the cost of inputs, of resources, of materials and oil and all sorts of things starts to unexpectedly rise. Wage rates start to rise. And so the cost of production that everybody was counting on have actually gone up. And that is more of these male investments, whether it's houses or condos or chip manufacturing, uh, high-tech equipment, it doesn't really matter. As all that stuff is completed and comes online, the prices for which they can sell those assets starts to go down. People don't have as much money uh, as they previously thought, and uh, everybody's much deeper in debt. And so eventually the houses that come onto the market are selling at lower prices. Eventually, the computer chips that come onto the market are selling for lower prices than the entrepreneurs had anticipated when they made those investments. And so it's quite natural and normal for any boom or any bubble in the economy to be undone um, by anything from a recession uh, to a crisis uh, in the economy will ensue, inevitably ensue. And so the Austrians actually look at the business cycle in the exact opposite way that most people do. 
we see the problem as the artificially low interest rates leading to uh, a bubble in the economy and all of these bad investments during during the boom phase of the economy when everybody else is happy, uh, Austrian economists are bemoaning that eventually we're going to learn that a lot of these resources were wasted. And so that's the bad part of the business cycle. The good part is unfortunately the recession or the crisis or the correction. If, if it's if it's a mild business cycle, it usually leads to what's called a correction. And that's the way Austrians view the downside of the business cycle is a correction in the sense that resources have to be allocated to the places in the economy where consumers actually want them. And, uh, and so it's unfortunate that that corrective phase also means for certain people unemployment. Um, it means reshifting your business. It might, might mean bankruptcy for your business. Uh, it might mean that people uh, have to go into bankruptcy. They might have their houses foreclosed. Uh, so those are all very, very unfortunate things for the individuals. But there's nothing to, there's nothing we can do to stop that. Right. Other other than not not initiating the boom in the first place. Right. That's right. Then how connect the dots for us then? How does that theory of the business cycle line up with the skyscraper correlation? Okay. Well, the skyscraper correlation only happens in the bigger uh, boom bust cycles, not in the say the mild boom bust cycles that were experienced in the United States in the 1950s, for example. But basically, everything starts with artificially low interest rates at the Federal Reserve. Uh, the next step is the banking industry, where interest rates are fall and uh, banks start making lots of more loans, uh, particularly for long-term investments. And of course, real estate and skyscrapers are very long-term investments. And so you, you start at the Fed, you go to banks, uh, and then the money gets into the hands of entrepreneurs making those bad investments. No matter what sector of the economy is uniquely affected, or if it's more of a general across the economy uh, type bubble that we seem to be experiencing today. And so, you know, that's the basic one, two, three step uh, movement. It's just in when you have extended periods of low interest rates, projects, and there's always projects like this um, on the drawing board uh, for technologies and uh, real estate ventures and, and skyscrapers. Uh, there's a lot of them online that, you know, probably will never be engaged in. But because you get such a long boom period, a long economic euphoria with uh, lots of speculative behavior that seems to be panning out, uh, that is when you somebody starts a world record setting skyscraper uh, in earnest. And, uh, and so as the skyscrapers go up, there's no realization that there's economic trouble ahead. And about the time that the record is set for the record height of livable space uh, in the skyscraper, it doesn't have to be completely completed. 
Uh, of course, this does vary a little bit from crisis to crisis. That's usually when things start to fall apart. And, and, and so that's, that's really the, the, the connection there is, you know, this is something we could see in any business cycle. But because if you're looking at the big cycles with the skyscraper curse involved in them, everything becomes a little more clear um, in the reader's eyes and just everybody's eyes um, when you can uh, see the types of changes that are going on throughout the economy if you can see them in a single building setting the world record at something, it just allows you to sort of peer into the business cycle, something that is much, that is otherwise much, much too complicated uh, to be able to understand. And um, one of the problems economists have had up until now is that they haven't really been able to identify on a micro level the types of changes that are going on. And so most business cycle theories uh, throw up their hands and, and don't really address the economic issues. Right. Yeah. They just chalk it all up to pure psychology kind of as an independent variable or something. Uh, That's absolutely right. It, it's all the Keynesian theories. There's no economics to them. Basically it's all driven by changes in social psychology or in Keynes's own word, words, excuse me, animal spirits. And uh, the Chicago theories are better, but they're based on this notion of technological shocks um, that you can't know ahead of time. And sometimes they don't even know really after the fact. So it has no predictive value and uh, their theories have no policy that comes from the theory that would allow us to cure the business cycle. Whereas the the Austrian theory, uh, we incorporate the psychological, we incorporate the techno technology issues. Uh, they're embedded in the theory. Uh, we would expect in the Austrian business cycle theory for there to be, uh, for example, positive changes in social psychology during the boom and negative ones in the bust. And we would also expect, uh, as you'll see it in my book, that the Austrian theory expects technological changes, very important ones, uh, during the boom. Uh, and basically, it amounts to entrepreneurs bringing in advanced technology, things that otherwise wouldn't be used, into whatever they're investing in. And, uh, and so we incorporate all that. It's all incorporated in the Austrian business cycle theory. But we have, a as a starting point, an economic cause, which is artificially low interest rates. Mm -hmm. And along with causing the boom-bust cycle, then the artificially low interest rates, easy money policies of the central bank, also, according to the Austrian theory, are the kind of ultimate cause of growing inequality. Is that correct? Yeah, that's something that hasn't been noticed even in the Austrian literature very much until recently. Uh, but there's been a much renewed interest in the Austrian business cycle theory. And in particular, in the, the, this aspect about economic inequality, something that American society is wrestling with today on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's, it's something that's very meaningful politically 
uh, moving forward. But in, in terms of the Austrian business cycle theory, well, what do we what do we have here? Well, an artificial lowering of the interest rate leading to higher asset prices. Uh, and so naturally, wealthy people, people with collateral have better access uh, to the banking system and loans um, than the wage worker with very little property or savings. Uh, and so all that new money is usually being funded to wealthy individuals, big corporations, things of that nature, and they're getting the positive consequence of rising stock prices, rising bond prices, rising capital asset prices, uh, real estate prices, land prices. And so this is something that very directly has a very positive influence on upper incomes and wealthy individuals. Whereas for the average wage worker or pensioner, uh, the only consequence that they will see is higher prices. So it's something that helps the wealthy and high incomes, and it's something that actively hurts uh, people in the very bottom of the income distribution in American society. Uh, the bottom 20% own virtually no property. Uh, they have no savings. Uh, they're working paycheck to paycheck. And as they see higher prices at the grocery store, the gas station, and McDonald's, which is pretty evident to me these days, mm -hmm. uh, their paycheck is the same. And so they've got to they've got to make decisions about how much driving they can do, uh, how much they can feed their family, how often can they stop for a cup of coffee at McDonald's. These are real everyday American choices that people are having to meet. You see it in the stores. I mean, I, you literally see it in the stores where people are put, putting back items because they don't have the cash to go around. It's really unfortunate, but it's deeply unfortunate that a policy that helps the wealthiest of Americans really puts a pinch. Uh, and that's probably putting it mildly on people in the bottom 20 or even the bottom 40 percent of uh, families today. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know that Austrian economics can't predict specifics can't predict the exact timing of things or the exact details of a particular boom or bust. But looking at the big picture and sort of broad strokes, where do you think that we seem to be currently in the business cycle based on Austrian business cycle theory and based on the skyscraper curse? Yeah, that's right. Austrian economic theory does gives you absolutely no tools to predict when something's going to happen and how significant it's going to be. Actually, in the book, I, I in a couple places, I point out regarding my predictions about the housing bubble uh, that I was specifically using uh, things that are not part of Austrian economics, like technical stock analysis, charting analysis, uh, where you're just trying to take the big picture uh, and blow it down into a one-page graphic. And so I would say that we're clearly at the end of this cycle. It's been a long expansion. 
It's not been particularly the greatest expansion. Uh, it's been a very uneven expansion, but the economy has been in positive territory for a very long period of time. I think it's the longest in re recorded economic statistical history uh, in the United States. And, you know, the, the amount of debt that's been built up is uh, enormous. So the pieces are definitely there. Uh, the costs um, side of the equation, I think, is starting to take hold. And uh, so we're, 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 I would su suggest that we're in the turn uh, from the boom to the bust. And, and that can take a long time, a lot longer than, than you would expect, uh, because the news has been positive for so long. It's, it's very hard to turn that psychology and, and for people to realize that, hey, wait a minute, something's you know, definitely gone wrong here. Our sales were fine, but now all of a sudden our accounts receivable we're having trouble. People aren't paying their bills and, and so forth. And so I think we're we're starting to get in that turn phase of the cycle. And like I said, sometimes it's very slow. Sometimes it's very quick. It depends on what trigger mechanisms are out there politically and institutionally that might um, ex extend that turn or what might quicken it. So for example, the Trump administration's uh, policy on deregulation, its tax cuts, the relaxing of environmental standards, not filling many, many positions in the federal government are positive actions that were largely unexpected. And so we're getting a little relief from that side of the equation. But who knows? I mean, that's going to slow the turn down a, a great deal. But you know, any number of things that the Trump administration is doing or not doing um, could cause that turn uh, to speed up. And, you know, obviously the big one there is trade policy in the 1930s. Well, in uh, 1930, after the stock market crash in 1929, Congress passed the Smoot-Hawley tariff, uh, which greatly uh, upset International trade resulted in a trade war, which we're starting here with China and in Europe and elsewhere, and um, it disrupted trade. It, it, it prevented trading partners from really engaging as they had done. And so, uh, yes, we had a lot fewer imports, but we had a lot fewer exports as well. And so that made an economic depression. Uh, it helped turn it into the Great Depression. And President Trump is, uh, you know, with respect to trade policy, has, I think, very much the wrong ideas. And if his idea is to bring about true free trade by all these threats and uh, all these uh, tariffs and exclusions, that's a very, very dangerous way to handle it. It's like, um, you know, how children would, would try to solve their their problems. They're not very good at the game, so they're going to take their ball and go home, you know, type of an approach where, you know, real adults would either take unilateral free trade actions and set a, a standard for others to follow, uh, or they would at least get together and agree to a, a, a solution that gradually lowers tariff barriers over time and eliminates them at some point in the future. Yeah, I, I think that there's good reason to think that Trump has very little understanding of 
economics in general and that, you know, people think, oh, he's a businessman, so he must understand the economy. And I, I look at everything he said and, and a fair amount of what he's done. I mean, as you mentioned, there's some positive economic things he's done, but I guess a stop clock is right a couple times a day. And it seems like he doesn't really understand economics in the broad sense very much. He just has sort of like a, a freakish talent for for kind of marketing and getting attention and that sort of thing. But you know what what really makes me think he doesn't really understand economics very well is the degree to which he's been trying to claim credit for the economy and primarily really just the stock market and some other things doing well since he's been president and that he's been sort of like staking out the current economy as the Trump economy and it seems to me like that's a that's a disastrous move if in fact there is a significant economic downturn on his watch, that he would have been better off to be a little bit more reluctant to take credit for the current economy. Yeah, I've, I've heard that inside the White House that uh, Trump pays a great deal of attention to the stock market, and I think that is to his detriment. Uh, he seems to have made it past uh, the congressional election. It doesn't seem as if uh, the economy or the stock market is going to adversely affect uh, the economy before uh, the November election. Uh, so he's he's avoided that one, but it you know it it can't last forever. And um, so it'll be interesting to see how politicians position themselves uh, going into the fall. Yeah, and. Unfortunately, uh, for for people who think the way you and I do about these things, if the economy tanks while he's president, it's going to mean that the free market will probably take the blame even harder because they'll say, well, he's a he's one of those free market capitalist Republicans and see what happened. And then, you know, I mean, it might might be better if if uh, the next bust happens when when some sort of socialist is in office or something. Well, and that's why I was encouraged to write this book at this time. Um, and I've had tremendous support here from the Mises Institute. Uh, and we're right up the country at, in Auburn, Alabama. Tremendous support from my colleagues, uh, both academic and non-academic. Uh, our president, Jeff Dice, is the one who came up with the idea to do this book at this time. I knew I would eventually write a book on the subject, but I think the timing is very important. And, and so one of the things we've done is uh, we have a link. If you if you go, go to our website, it's mises.org to see everything that we offer about Austrian economics. And it's an amazing amount of uh, information that's uh, in multiple formats. And, you know, it's been contributed by thousands of people uh, supported by our donors and so forth. Uh, but we have a special link for your audience, which is mises.org backslash curse, C-U-R-S-E. And at that link, you can access a free copy of the book in uh, PDF format or audio format. I think there's four free formats. And then you also on that same page, you can, you can uh, purchase a hard copy of the book. And it's not very expensive. It's uh, very tightly written, and uh, I think it's like $18 to buy a cop copy. Uh, and so we hope that a lot of people get this information, a lot of young people get this information, 
and uh, a lot of people in the media to eventually get this information uh, into as many hands as possible so that when it does hit the fan that we have something to fall back on and uh, and that more people realize that the free market republicanism is nothing more than crony capitalism, which is so obvious today. Not obvious enough, obviously, but you know we want to make that point. We, we've always been making the point that socialism is not the answer for solving the economy's problems. And, uh, and so that's why we're making a big push. And uh, I encourage you and all your listeners to, uh, to, to get a hold of a copy and to uh, spread them around on social media. Yeah, yeah, I definitely urge listeners to check it out. And uh, I'm going to put that link in the show notes so that everybody can take advantage of that. And I, like I said, I haven't read this book yet, but I have read um, your your book on economics of prohibition, your book on the tariffs and blockades in the Civil War, and a bunch of articles. And I can I can tell everybody that Mark's writing is very very easy to follow. It's very you know, clear, you don't have to have a PhD in economics to to follow the arguments and all that sort of stuff. So very user friendly. And if I could just ask you uh, one more question, if you have time. Sure. Well, the, um, you know, the, the solutions to the economy at the macro level are things we've already mentioned uh, in the conversation get rid of the central bank, let the free market set interest rates in general, free up the economy and so on, and and you won't get the same boom-bust cycles anymore. But it seems to me that, at least in the short term, that politically a lot of those reforms are unlikely to be brought about by our current political class. So, you know, obviously we want to in any way we can try and influence public opinion and that sort of thing. But in the short term, I think we're kind of stuck with the elites that we have. And so there's a good chance that these sorts of problems will continue to be a problem in the short term. But I wanted to ask you, do you have any any suggestions for sort of the average middle class person who has a basic understanding of the business cycle, who thinks that there might be problems on the horizon and that maybe our elites are not going to do the right things to fix these problems. What can the average person do, do you think, to try and weather a potential crash the best they can? Well, it's hard. Macroeconomic uh, has, a, has a way of just harming everybody. Uh, but there are some things to consider. One is to don't, you know, get over leveraged yourself with, uh, you know, new mortgages and, and borrowing and, and things of that nature. Uh, you know, I, I look at the typical American's balance sheet right now and I see too much debt um, and income that's really not uh, going anywhere. And, uh, and so, you know, saving for a rainy day is something you could start today. And also not extending yourself with debt is something you can start today. And so I like to pay off any kind of debt that isn't tax advantage, uh, such as your mortgage. So your mortgage should be probably the last one you try to pay off. Try to get new sources of income, part-time work, hobbies that might be positive revenue, things of that nature. And also the general recognition right now is that commodity prices 
are very low uh, across the board, with the exception really of uh, energy prices have started to rise and have risen actually an enormous amount since the bottom. Back in 2009 or 10, uh, energy prices, oil prices are up significantly. But a lot of other day-to-day commodities like uh, sugar and coffee and um, all those kind of things are relatively low. So there are there are some spaces in the economy which will probably be helped by price inflation going forward. So that farmers will hopefully have an advantage as a result of that. And of course, America is a big farming agricultural country. And, and so that's going to benefit people as well. And, um, you know, so I hesitate to use the word grow your own food because that's really not possible for so many people. Um, but caution is the order of the day. All right. Well, Thanks very much for um, your time and for sharing your expertise today on the Dangerous History Podcast. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, it's been great. This is my first time on the podcast, and I really enjoyed doing it. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it and found value in it. And I'd like to give a special thanks to the following awesome individuals for helping me to keep doing what I'm doing. For signing up to support the show via Patreon. I'd like to thank Kent and Seth. Thanks very much for stepping up to support the show. If you like the show, please go to the website, DangerousHistoryPodcast.com, to find the show notes, including Amazon links for this and all other regular DHP episodes. You can also like and follow the show on Facebook and also follow the show on Twitter. And if you like the show, please subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or however else you prefer to get your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me out to keep this thing going and growing and constantly improving, such as simply spreading the word to other people you think might like the show and leaving ratings and reviews in places like iTunes. You can also help the show financially. Go to profcj.org donate. And you'll find a bunch of different ways to do this, including a link to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash profcj. And for a pledge of just $5 per month, you'll have access to special bonus episodes available nowhere else, early access to ad-free versions of all regular upcoming DHP episodes, and access to what I call vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. You'll also be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. Also on the donate page, you will find links to do one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, as well as donations via Bitcoin. Another great way you can help out the show is to do your Amazon shopping through any of the Amazon affiliate links and do your A-book shopping from any of my A-books affiliate links found anywhere on my website. I post Amazon affiliate links of items related to each episode in that episode's show notes. I also have generic Amazon and A-books affiliate links in the sidebar of the website. And if you go through any of those links to those sites and buy anything, even if it's not an item I specifically link to, I will get a small commission and that helps me keep the show going. Also want to mention a continuing work in progress is my dangerous Amazon bibliography. If you go to profcj.org slash Amazon, that's profcj.org slash Amazon. There's also a link to it on the little post-it note on my website. 
And there you'll find a whole ton of Amazon links to books and movies organized by rough subject matter. And those are all things that have been a very big influence on me and on this show. You know, not all of them are books I've cited as of yet somewhere on the show, but they're all books that have informed my thinking, many of which I have cited from and many of which I will cite from in the future to some degree or another. And of course, those being Amazon affiliate links, if you buy anything from any of those links, even if it's not the item itself that was linked to, but you click through to Amazon from one of those links, then buy something else, I will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. And this will help keep the Dangerous History podcast rolling as well. Also, if you need some stock audiovisual materials, such as stock video to use in a film you're making or music to put in a podcast, that sort of thing, check out Pond5.com. They have a great collection of high-quality, royalty-free material available for purchase. And please go there through my affiliate link if you'd like to help out this show. I've used a lot of music from Pond5 in my podcast episodes, including, by the way, all the great music in my Not-So-Civil War series that I'm always getting compliments and questions on. So if you go through the Pond5 affiliate link, if you purchase anything, I will get a commission from anything you buy at no additional cost to you, as with the Amazon links as well. And of course, be sure to patronize any other companies whose ads you may have heard on this episode, if you're at all interested in the products that they offer. That's another way you can help out this show. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.